Support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, who are excited to introduce their all-new Rate Shield approval. If you're in the market to buy a home, Rate Shield approval is a real game changer, and here's why. First, Quicken Loans will lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. But here's the crucial part: if rates go up, your rate stays the same. But if rates go down, your rate also drops. Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com/fool. It's Monday, September 24th, and welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Jason Moser. On today's financial show, we'll talk about the changing face of banking, we'll tap into Twitter for a listener question or two, and we'll wrap it all up with one to watch. Joining me today is certified financial planner Matt Frankel. Matt, hope you guys are recovering from the storm okay there in Columbia. Oh, yeah, it's beautiful weather this past week, so we can, we're, we're, we got a lot luckier than the people to the north of us. Well, that's good to hear. Sounds like it was a pretty good weekend for your South Carolina Gamecocks. They uh, laid a, laid the hammer down on on Vanderbilt. It looked like. Yes, sir. We have Kentucky next week, and hopefully, we can keep it going. Well, my beloved Wofford Terriers had the week off, so no football there. But I think we're visiting Gardner Webb this weekend, so uh, we'll. Uh, We'll revisit those scores next Monday. Hopefully, we'll have a couple of wins to talk about. Um, let's see. You know, first, I want to bring up uh, th- this week's episode. I want to start it off here talking a little bit about Facebook. Uh, we were reading an article here last week in regard to Facebook and relationships they've been trying to forge with banks. It seems like they've been trying to forge these relationships for a long time, even well before all of these recent data concerns. Uh, and the data concerns, of course. That 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 just came out. I think if it probably cast a sort of a shadow of, of skepticism over Facebook, what it's really do, doing with our data, how much it really cares about our privacy, and, and I think when I when I read about Facebook and I hear banks mentioned in the same conversation, I start to get a little bit uh, I, I get a little bit curious as to how users really would feel about the two being tied together. Now I'll preface this by saying that. I'm not a Facebook guy. I mean, I had a Facebook profile once upon a time, but I closed it and just left the platform. It just wasn't for me. I don't use Instagram. I don't use WhatsApp. I don't use any of their stuff. So, I mean, I know I'm probably <laughs> obviously in the minority here, but but I think I really want to kick it off to you here from the very from the very get go. When I think about Facebook trying to get relationships with different financial institutions, for me, I think more about the financial institutions. Why would a bank? Want to give up that data to Facebook? I mean, is the upside for the bank really worth it? I mean, I would assume Facebook would would make it worth their while financially in some regard, but but is it is the upside really worth it? Well, Facebook says that they just want they wanted all this data just to for kind of purposes of enhancing customer experiences, but they also can, can use the data they get from financial institutions for targeted ad purposes as well. And that's where banks kind of don't really like this that much. They want to keep their customers' data as secure as possible. Customers don't really want their their data used for those purposes in many ways. Um, so banks have been very resistant to this. Some banks have made individual deals with Facebook. Um, just to kind of give you an example, uh, Amex as a private chatbot on um, on Facebook's platform, and they kind of made a special deal with Facebook where they kind of give some kind of some data directly to Facebook, but Facebook can't collect data from Amex's secure chats. 
Um, Bank of America, for example, chose to keep all of their private messaging off of Facebook's platform for this reason. So it doesn't really look like the banks think that they have a lot to gain by allowing Facebook access to their data. Um, and a lot of them have been very resistant so far. Yeah, I mean, I feel like when Facebook talks about wanting to enhance the user experience, I mean, to me, that's just code for selling more ads. I mean, that really is Facebook's bottom line at the end of the day, right? I mean, this is an ad play for investors. If you're looking at Facebook as an investment, I mean, this is an ad play. And it's not to say that's a bad thing. I mean, obviously, Google or Alphabet, uh, as we call it now, has done very well uh, with an ad model. And we see plenty of businesses that do very well with an ad model. So, I guess I wonder, I mean, can Facebook at this point really be anything other than an ad play? I mean, I know they're talking about releasing some hardware here uh, that, that is a sort of a chat function, sort of similar to an Amazon Echo. I'm not really sure I give that thing a chance. It seems like it's a little late to the game, but but I just I wonder, at least in the near term, and I'm talking about next three to five years, do we look at Facebook as anything other than an ad play? Not really. I really don't think Facebook has much ambition when it comes to banking itself. So I don't really think that they're going to evolve into much more than an ad play. They, like I said, they want this data mostly so they could target ads. Um, Facebook's old policy before all this this data issues came up were um, it used to be that that they could use all available data to present the most targeted ads possible to customers. And now they've kind of, now that they've gotten pushback, they've modified their policy a little bit. But at the end of the day, Facebook just wants to sell ads and use this data to target those ads so they can charge top dollar for them. It's not really a play toward getting into banking or any consumer finance at all. I think they're just going to stay in ad play. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's always worth noting. I mean, consumers volunteer this information up on Facebook. It's not like they're twisting your arm. I mean, they've done a very good job of building a platform here that that more or less connects the world. So you can use it, or you can choose not to use it. I mean, if you use it, it's not like you're paying anything for it. So they have to support that some way. Selling ads is a reasonable way to do it. I mean, I think in today's day and age, if you use the internet, I think you have to go in there with the assumption <laughs> that some of your data. Is just up for grabs, right? So I, I certainly don't go into any of these uh, any of these types of stories thinking it that uh, you know my data is always going to be under lock and key. That's just not the way things work this uh, these days. Uh, okay, so speaking of big companies that are burning trust like it's firewood on a cold winter's day, let's talk about Wells Fargo. Uh, I was reading an article here just the other day. CEO Tim Sloan said on Thursday, Wells Fargo plans to cut five to ten percent. Of its workforce, of its workforce, at 265,000 people that work for the company today. So we're talking somewhere in the neighborhood of 25, 26, 20,000, 27,000 people. They're talking about trying to trying to get rid of here in the next couple of years as as banking moves uh, more digital. And I, this isn't really, I think, um, a new story. I mean, we've been talking a lot about this lately, how banks with this huge physical presence. I mean, you see a banking center on every corner. It seems like these days. And I think they're they're seeing more and more of it. You want to go to the bank like you want to go to the dentist. I mean, you just you try not to do it, right? Yeah, I mean, banking's definitely moving more digital. Uh, Tim Sloan he specifically referenced increased efficiency when um, when this announcement was made. So they have to see all these other kind of smaller fintech players as a threat when it comes to these layoffs as well. 
Um, they know their business model isn't really working anymore as is. So they're, they've been kind of, they're not, not just downsizing branches, but trying to rely more on their mobile and online platforms and just kind of making their operation run a lot more efficiently to compete. And a lot of that is being, their hand is being forced by some of these fintech players that we're about to talk about. Yeah, I was reading uh, a, a little bit earlier in the week on how the younger generation, uh, I mean, I'm talking about, you know, our kids, you know, my kids, your kids. I mean, they're growing up in a, in a day and age here where finance is being viewed very differently and with money uh, transferring apps like Venmo and Google Pay, Square Cash. Um, I saw the state of point American teens today are four times less likely to use cash than ever before. And I mean, that has certain implications, right? I mean, for the most part now, kids are trying to figure out ways to get about. Uh, without having to use cash whatsoever. Now that means that they need to use a banking system in some in some way, shape, or form. And certainly, there's there's a place for Wells Fargo uh, in that in that uh, story. But I mean, it just to me, it seems like uh, now more than ever, these big banks that have just done so well for so long with this big physical presence, whether it's Wells Fargo or Bank of America, really, those are the two that that uh, come right to mind. They have they have some very bloated cost structures that I think they're going to have to come to terms with here over the coming uh, five to ten years. And, and like you mentioned, I mean those nimble uh, little startups there that are that are becoming a lot a lot bigger than startups these days have have big advantages because they don't have that bloated cost structure. We were just talking. I was talking to my daughter last night. She came back from a babysitting gig. She got twenty dollars for babysitting. It was twenty dollars cash, and she's looking at this twenty dollar bill and she's thinking, okay, what do I do with this? I mean, I've got a wallet, and I mean, I guess I could put it in there, and she could go spend it at some point. But she's looking for some place to put it where it can be safe. And I was thinking, you know, maybe this, maybe this is an opportunity for us to go open up like a Square Cash account for, and you know, then you know, she can give me the twenty dollars, I can transfer it over to her account, and then she's got her money, and it's safe, and you don't have to worry about uh, losing it. But um, hey. Uh, like we're talking about the changing face of banking. In line with that, Amazon Prime, which is the relationship now that seems like you probably should get it along with your social security number and Netflix subscription when you're born. Uh, Amazon is is at least being thrown around here in this banking conversation. Uh, recently, Bain surveyed 6,000 U.S. consumers. Uh, asked them if if Amazon launched a free online bank account that came with two percent cash back on all Amazon.com purchases, would you sign up to try it? Uh, it was very interesting the response there. Almost seventy percent of those in the eighteen to thirty four uh, age bracket said they would try it. Uh, about fifty percent in the thirty five to fifty five uh, fifty four year old bracket said they would try it, and under forty percent of those older than fifty five uh, said they would try it. Now this. This makes me think about one of the greatest advantages banks have these days. In that, now I'll I'll put myself in that. Uh, let me see here. I'm in that age bracket where I'm 35 to 54, and I'll just leave it at that. But we've got this Bank of America account that we've had now for years, and we have it because it was convenient at the time. It's become even more convenient with the online banking options. And frankly, we have so many things that are tied to this account. Now, automatic uh, deductions that come out, whether it's insurance or our mortgage uh, or, or just household bills every month. We have so much tied to this account and that banking relationship. It, it would really, it would be a lot of work to try to sever that relationship. And there would probably be a lot of problems that come from it. Um, 
it's not worth the work. I don't really bank with Bank of America because I love Bank of America. It's a means to an end, and it would just be way more work at this point to quit it. For younger generations that don't have banking relationships yet, they're going to see this a lot differently. And so I think this question with Amazon comes up. I mean, I wonder from your perspective, is it is it worth Amazon even even fishing in these waters? Well, maybe. I mean, one of the more interesting statistics from the survey that you just mentioned that I read was that thirty seven percent of people who don't even shop on Amazon right now would try an Amazon checking account if it gave them two percent rewards. So that was one of the most interesting things that I saw. Um, so this could be a way for Amazon to bring even more customers into its ecosystem. Having said that, I really don't see Amazon getting too deep into the banking business. One, it brings up a ton of regulatory headaches. Two, it's becoming a more crowded space. And I don't know if Amazon, say, developed a brokerage platform, would people switch? Would, would I drop TD Ameritrade to go to Amazon? Probably not. Um, if they had a you know a personal lending platform, would people stop going to the more established personal lenders and go to Amazon? Probably not. So I don't think it's would be worth the regulatory headaches, especially. And it's just not really a business Amazon really needs to be in. Now that said, I could definitely see them partnering with one of the big financial institutions. Um, it's known that they've been in talks with J.P. Morgan Chase and Capital One, for example, when it comes to developing this checking account. I could see them kind of doing what they do with their credit card, putting their name on a credit card that's issued by another institution. So, you know, JP Morgan Chase, Amazon free checking, uh, something to that effect. I could see them kind of partnering with an institution. I don't see them becoming the bank itself. Yeah, I think that makes sense. It makes me think, you know, I've got that Amazon Prime Visa and I've been really happy with it. We're Prime members, of course, so just as. Uh, we are we we make that money back in shipping with just on just on toilet paper every year alone. Um, but I mean the Amazon Visa card. You look at the rewards you get from that. You get five percent cash back on purchases from Amazon.com and now Whole Foods. You get two percent back at restaurants, gas stations, drug stores. One percent back on all other purchases. So you're right. They do a really good job of partnering up uh, with leaders in that space where they can offer a compelling value. And, and I think with Amazon, the focus is always trying to figure out how to be as customer-centric as possible. And it, it takes me back to one of the things that I, I have seen it time and time again as an investor. It's one thing I've learned is even if a company has the financial resources to do something, doesn't necessarily mean that they should. It's very difficult to pick up share on companies that have a big lead and already do something really well. Like I don't know that Amazon could really offer a checking account or a banking account and do much different than is already being done by a lot of the major players out there today. So I, th- I think partnering up probably makes a little bit more sense, like you're saying. But I guess uh, I guess we'll see. You know, Walmart certainly tested those waters uh, a number of years back, and I guess they decided ultimately. Uh, the the juice wasn't worth the squeeze, as they say. But uh, you know, Amazon is certainly certainly trying everything they can to to gain a little bit of a entry. It seems like in everything we do. Okay, moving away from banks for a moment, we're going to talk a little bit about home equity and a report that was released recently by data analytics provider CoreLogic. Uh, showed that home equity rose 12.3 percent year over year in the second quarter of 2018. Meaning that the average homeowner uh, in the U.S. saw their equity increase by a little bit over sixteen thousand dollars in one year, 
you know, Matt, I, I swear I knew I felt richer, but I mean, now here's the proof, right? Um, and, and this obviously it's average numbers, okay? So we're talking about everywhere from California here to Northern Virginia and everything in between. Uh, so with that said, I mean, some geographic regions saw bigger, bigger absolute dollar bumps than others. But the bottom line is that as homeowners, this matters. Now I'm a homeowner. You're a homeowner. I think it's something. It's a conversation worth having. Uh, because to me, I, I always think about this home equity, and I wonder how other people view their home equity. I mean, it's it's is it a security blanket? Is it emergency fund? Is is it something that you use to to travel? I mean, how do you personally look at your home equity today? I mean, I look at it mostly as an emergency fund. Like, it's nice to have if I need it. Um, home equity is generally a low cost form of borrowing in terms of interest rates because it's backed up by your home. So you can generally get a home equity loan or line of credit for less than you could get, say, a personal loan. So in that sense, it's a nice emergency fund if you need it. Um, I don't like to view it as kind of a tappable piggy bank as a lot of people do, just because it's it's your house. You're, you want to build equity. That's kind of half the purpose of being a homeowner is to eventually build up some equity over time. If you're going to use your home equity, I always suggest doing it on something, that, on things that are going to enhance the value of your home. Um, my home is only four years old, so we haven't had to do any major renovations yet. But say if in 20 years I need a new kitchen, that's something I would consider using my home equity for because it's going to enhance the value of my home. Um, I, I hope Americans don't start getting into the habit of using their home equity for, say, vacations or to buy a boat or making other big purchases like that, as we saw before the financial crisis, because that's where it starts to lead to trouble. Um, yes, you have equity in your home now, but as we saw 10 years ago, it could just as easily go the other way. You could have $100,000 of equity in your home right now, but then your home drops by $100,000 in value, and now you don't have equity. Now you owe money against an asset that isn't worth what what it's backing. And it can just become dangerous. So I say it's an emergency fund. It's nice to be there, but be careful when you use it. Yeah, there is history on our side here. Right? I mean, I know what you mean. We saw that back in 2005. I'd say I was, I was working at Bank of America as a loan officer in the early 2000s. I think it was 2000, 2001. Um, 2002 in that in that general general area where all you had to do was walk into a banking center and tell us that you wanted to refinance and you were pretty much approved right on the spot no matter what and we saw that money going towards all sorts of different uses. I tend to agree with you. I mean, I look at I look at our home equity and I think you know what that's a nice emergency fund if we need it. Uh, ultimately, I hope it's a nice tailwind when we decide to to perhaps downsize a little bit once the kids are older and moved out. Um, I, I I definitely would not support tapping our our home equity for anything uh, frivolous. Now, I mean, to your point, enhancing the home, uh, making repairs or additions, I think that makes sense. And in a, in a point here that worth noting, and beginning in 2018, the interest on home equity debt is no longer deductible unless it was used to buy, build, or substantially improve your home. So, I mean, it is a little bit of a different scenario today than it was 10, 15 years ago, right? I mean, that's not probably the reason people took out that debt, because they knew they could deduct it from their taxes. But it does seem like, at least today, there is less incentive there. It doesn't mean like you can deduct everything under the sun. 
Uh, so, so I, I, I think that probably makes the most sense. It, it's interesting to note too that um, on top of the equity news, average FICO scores, uh, which are essentially that's that that's that borrower's report card. I mean, that's going to determine what kind of a credit risk you are. FICO scores are at all time highs, an average of seven hundred and four. Which is pretty phenomenal. I know my FICO score; it's 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 better than 704, but you know I consider myself on top of our pills. So, um, I mean that that means that people are able to borrow, and and uh, and so that's worth noting as well. But but I do think it's it's uh, worth noting the the changes on the deductibility of that interest. Um, and hey, I mean, we're talking about uh, home equity and borrowing. It seems like as, as good a time as any to remind you that support for industry focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Let's talk about buying a home for a minute because we've been talking about it for a few minutes now, Matt. Because of rising interest rates, there are a lot of unpredictability when it comes to buying a home these days. It's causing a lot of anxiety with folks, and well, our friends at Quicken Loans are doing something about that. They're calling it the power buying process, and here's how it works. Quicken Loans will verify your income, assets, and credit in less than 24 hours to give you a verified approval. This gives you the strength of a cash buyer. Then, once you're verified, you qualify for their all-new, exclusive Rate Shield approval. First, they'll lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. Now, here's the best part. If rates go up, your rate stays the same. But if rates go down, your rate also drops. Either way, you win. Matt, I'm on board, right? I mean, we, we like winning. Winning's good. Yep. Absolutely. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest home mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash fool. Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-year purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply. Based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records, equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states. NMLSConsumerAccess.org number 3030. Okay, Matt, let's go a little bit more towards these startup banks. Let's move away from the legacies and more towards the future here. You and I, uh, we, we talk a lot about Square. Square is a company we like a lot. We're both invested in it. And it. Based on what I saw on Twitter last week, it sounds like you've done, you've done even better on your Square investment than I have, which is just terrific. I think you said you were up about 800% or something at this point. Yeah, I got in when they were trading at about eleven dollars. Um, Strong. And, and at the time, I didn't see it really for what it was. I just noticed the little square readers and popping up everywhere around town, and said, hey, "That's that, there's a future in that." Yeah, I think it's very difficult when you see these types of companies. It's difficult to see perhaps how far they can go based on what they are at that current small little sort of startup status. And I think for for the most part, Square is seen as a payments company, and rightly so. Uh, but this Square, uh, this interview with CFO Sarah Fryer is from a Recode conference a couple of weeks back. Um, and we'll tweet the link out to that interview on the, uh, the industry-focused Twitter feed. But Matt, you published an article a few days back on Fool.com called The Biggest Reason Square Stock Could Keep Climbing. And it centers around what I think is a bit of a serendipitous product offering for the company uh, that that is really starting to pay off, right? Yeah, the Square Cash app. Um, Square Cash just just recently surpassed Venmo in terms of total downloads, so it's become a very very popular popular app. And the thing that people need to know is that Square doesn't really make money on it. Um, they have about seven million active users, and they're using incentives to get people to use their platform more, such as uh, Square, they're using kind of an offers bonus program 
that Square is footing the bill for. So they're actually really probably losing money on Square Cash right now. But the long-term potential in that is what those customers could be used for. And this is where the banking part comes in. Square's uh, Sarah Fryer, the CFO, just recently said that Square wants to anything you can do with a bank, you'll eventually be able to do with the Square Cash app. Um, the big thing that people have speculated is Square is going to start doing personal loans to to cash customers. Um, that would be a very natural transition. They already do business loans through Square Capital. They've already you know made their intention clear on applying for a banking license, so that could be a very natural progression. Um, things like savings and checking accounts, um, high yield CDs, even a brokerage platform are all things that are possible. And now they have, you know, 7 million active users, more than 33 million downloads in their ecosystem that they could leverage. And she said that the, one of the reasons that they feel this way is because people are actually leaving pretty large balances in their square, square cash accounts, and they want to help these people, you know, put that money to work, use it to their advantage, invest for their future, um, you know, be able to loan them money if they need to. So just to kind of put that in perspective, Square has about 2 million business customers, which is what they're generally known for. So they have more than three and a half times the amount of active customers in the Cash App. So that's why when we say that they've barely begun to unlock the potential of their business, that's where that comes from, because this is millions and millions of people. And even if, I mean, even if they got the same adoption rate as Square Capital's business loans, this could be a you know a big, big revenue driver for the company that can make their current the payment processing business look like small potatoes at some point. I've said that Square could you know easily grow into the size of PayPal or beyond, which would be huge compared to its current price. But I I think that Square Cash is the future of the company, hands down. Yeah, I think I think you're right in in that comparison to PayPal. I mean, if you look at the gross uh, purchase volume that goes through the both networks today, I mean, Square is still essentially a fraction of PayPal's. Um, yet they're both really tackling that same that same market, and, and clearly they're they're both uh, leading the way. So so plenty of room for them to grow. The one the quote that she she mentioned on the call there uh, on that interview that really stood out to me was when she said commerce is a continuum because I think that really that speaks to, to essentially what you were just talking about there. Is Square is much more than just a payments company. I mean they're looking uh, they're they're looking to be a part of the consumers. Experience from start to finish, and 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 the encouraging thing there is that they're they're using a lot of data to make a lot of really good decisions. So I think uh, a lot of a lot of great things probably still to come out from this company. All right, let's take a look at this week on Twitter. Uh, I'm going to go here to at every ninety Midwest who chimed in. He said, "I bought something today at Home Depot using my Amazon Visa card via PayPal. Own all four. Feels good." Every 90 Midwest, that's the way you do it, right? You have Amazon, Visa, Home Depot, and PayPal all in the same sentence. They're all in the same portfolio. And uh, I mean, it doesn't take a genius to realize if you're holding those four names that are all four outperforming for you. What that tweet uh, 
brought up, though, was a good question from at Jeffrey Leaf, and he asked, I bought an Appreciate the Bucket, and he's talking about the War on Cash basket that I that I recommended a, a little over a year ago, uh, Square, Visa, MasterCard, and PayPal. He said, I love that basket just as much as anyone, but why can't Visa circumvent PayPal in this scenario? And, and I mean, it's a really good question, actually, because you can think of it a number of different ways. Um, first and foremost, I, I think it goes to recognizing that the value chain in in regard to money moving from point A to point B is anything but simple and and so if you look at the players in that space i mean i mean more and more it becomes uh, a big game of connect the dots to try to figure out every step of the process and how each company plays their little role in that process we were talking about earlier matt when it comes to visa and paypal the main reason why Visa can't really circumvent PayPal in this scenario really boils down to the core purpose that PayPal serves and in, in what the company was started on anyway, right? Yeah, PayPal was, is kind of the first mover in what it does. Um, it's not that Visa couldn't do what PayPal does. It's that at this point, it would just be too tough to kind of overtake them. PayPal's gotten very big and very good at what they do. And it's not that Visa couldn't develop the technology. Visa is very, very good at what they do. They're perfectly content to let their let their business grow at a right now it's grown at about a twenty percent annual rate, just their cart just because of the worldwide transition away from cash that we always talk about. So they're perfectly happy with that. They they don't need to invest billions and billions of dollars to become the next PayPal. They could do it, but they there's no good reason to, and they, it wouldn't make very good sense from a business perspective. It would just cost way too much money to do, and even then, it might not be successful. Yeah, it really shows you how, I mean, how much of a head start PayPal had on everyone. I mean, when they saw back in the day how the internet was changing the way everybody did everything, from consuming entertainment to buying things. I mean, heck, to going to the doctor at this point, even. But I mean, to be able to to essentially create a new position in the value chain, which is basically what PayPal did. And you're right; at this point now, they've gotten that network so big and so strong, they've created essentially another position in the value chain that it, it really would more than likely be a waste of Visa's time to try to invest money in displacing PayPal when they could simply. Be a partner of PayPal's and continue to benefit from that toll booth that they run so well. So yeah, I, I tend to agree. With you. I think that uh, we'll continue to see PayPal, uh, Square, companies like that will be partnering up more and more with with Visa and Mastercard. And I think Visa and Mastercard are going to be really happy to do it because those companies like PayPal and Square, especially because they tap so much into small business, they really do promote. I think a lot of of spending that otherwise perhaps would have been uh, been been transacted in cash years ago. All right, so let's wrap this week up here. We're going to talk about one to watch. This is a stock we have on our radar for the week for one reason or another. Matt, I'm going to let you start it off here. What's your one to watch this week? Um, everyone knows me as the REIT guy, so I'm going to recommend a, a real estate investment trust known as Digital Realty Trust. They are one of the biggest owner operators of data centers in the in the world um, they just announced a big acquisition of a brazil-based data center company that um, made the stock go down a little bit so i think it's a pretty good time to take a look at it they are a great play on the need for data storage and everything kind of goes along with what we've been talking about everything kind of migrating to digital 
um, and connected, you know, there's rising connected devices all over the world. Um, so there should be no shortage of demand for data centers going forward. Digital Realty pays about 4% per year as a dividend and has done an excellent job of increasing that at a double digit rate over the past, over its roughly 15 year history. And I really don't see that changing anytime soon. So after this little pullback, when they announced their acquisition, um, I think it's a really good time to take another look at the company. And what's the ticker for Digital Realty? It is DLR. All right. Um, I'm, I'm going to actually go with PayPal this week. And really, it was just because I saw at the end of last week uh, the news that they were cutting off InfoWars from their network. And I mean, I tell you, when it rains, it pours. And really, I mean, InfoWars just can't seem to catch a break here. But I think that's probably for a good reason. Uh, you're going to have people taking both sides of the coin on this one. Um, freedom of speech versus generally just being a good person. <laughs> I mean, I think InfoWars has kind of dug their own grave here. I think it's worth noting, I mean, it's free speech, not free speech without consequence. Otherwise, there'd be no libel or slander or any any type of uh, litigation in, in regard to that stuff. So, I think at the end of the day, uh, PayPal is, is not going to be affected by something like this. I think a lot of people like to think maybe they will be. I'd, I'd, I'd put my money against that. I think just as, as folks thought Nike's Colin Kaepernick ad was going to Cause big problems. I, you know, the, these are businesses that do a lot of thinking about these types of decisions before they make them. And so I think with PayPal, I think this is ultimately just going to be something that ends up being a non-issue for them. Certainly uh, creates a little bit of a headline in the short run, but not anything I think investors need to worry about. And at the end of the day, hey, you know, listen, just be a good person, be a nice person. If you do that, everything else seems to work out. All right, it's pretty easy to do. Matt, thanks for joining me this week. Appreciate you coming by. All right. Thanks for having me. Yep. We'll see you next week. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. The show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. 